0: All right. Good morning. Happy Palm Sunday. Um, Just like to start with one quick announcement. Um, Scripture encourages us to rejoice with those who rejoice, and uh, someone in the congregation has a great reason to rejoice. That yesterday, Ola Aladelikin got engaged to uh, Stephanie Swanson. So don't forget to congratulate him, or tease him, or whatever you want to do. (laughs) So, um, as Keith said, uh, today is our last day in our Before the Cross series. Uh, Throughout the Lenten season, we have been looking at Jesus' last words to his disciples before his arrest, and... um, This is the last Sunday in the season of Lent. We've reached the end. If uh, you've been fasting from anything for this season, you're on the home stretch. You've only got one week left, so stick it out. You're almost there. Uh, But we're going to pick up where we left off last week, which is John chapter 16, starting in verse 16. John 16, 16. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this morning. Uh, We thank you for the opportunity to study uh, your word together. Lord, we ask that you would help us to set our attention on it right now. There's so many distractions, so many things that we could be thinking about uh, that we have to do this week. uh, So many um, worries and concerns that may be running through our heads. And we pray that right now you would help us to just give our attention to you and to the scriptures. We invite your spirit to work in our hearts. And open our minds to receive whatever it is you want to tell us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Jesus went on to say, In a little while you will see me no more. And then, after a little while, you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, In a little while you will see me no more? and then after a little while you will see me. And because I am going to the Father, they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Right? So Jesus, he says something, and then he just kind of, leave, kind of leaves it hanging. In a little while you will see me no more, then after a little while you will see me. And it seems like Jesus took a break from speaking after he threw that out there. Who knows, maybe he walked down the path a little bit, took in the sunset, thought about what was coming. Uh, But whatever he did, he gave enough space between himself and the the disciples for the disciples to start murmuring among each other, asking questions. And they expressed confusion to each other. We don't understand what he's talking about. What does he mean? And I'd like to take this opportunity to just remind us all, if you ever have trouble understanding Jesus, it's okay. (laughs) Okay. The disciples had trouble all the time. This is just one example of many, right? Uh, Jesus is patient with us. Of all the people in the world that he could have chosen, he chose a couple of people to be his disciples who constantly didn't understand what he was talking about. So let's continue in verse 19. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant? when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. So it's like Jesus says, oh, come on, guys, I can hear you. You're not that far away. I can tell that you want more details. And uh, he doesn't really give them more details. He stays cryptic, but he does help them to understand what this experience is going to be like for them emotionally. It's going to be like a woman giving birth, right? And of course, what he's talking about is the pain of Good Friday followed by the exhilaration of Easter morning, right? That's what this emotional roller coaster is that they're about to be on. Look at verse 20 again. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. Some of you might be wondering. Wait, did the whole world rejoice when Jesus was crucified? Didn't most people in the world not even know what was going on? Why does Jesus say that? You will weep and mourn while the the world rejoices. Well, if you're confused, there's a simple answer. You might remember that last week we talked about when Jesus says the world, it, it means something specific. The world here is his way of referring to the religious leaders who wanted him dead. And he calls the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the world, because he he's recognizing that they are part of a bigger system. They have adopted the values of the world, worldly values. Okay, the, world, the world's values are money, power, and fame, that sort of thing. Prioritize those things. That's what the world says. Now, the values of the kingdom, as Jesus teaches us, they prioritize justice mercy and love and what had happened was that the religious leaders of Jesus's time had adopted the world's values they prioritized money power and fame and so when Jesus refers to them he refers to them as part of the world they are part of this whole corrupt system so he doesn't mean that when he gets crucified you know people all the way over in in uh, Japan are going to be like yay you know Jesus got crucified. That's not what he means. Uh, But he means that the Pharisees, specifically, are going to be happy. Um, They're going to be happy because when Jesus is killed, they're going to think that the threat to their money, power, and fame has been destroyed. But, of course, they will be wrong about that because Jesus will return. And Jesus says that when he does, you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Jesus says, in that day, you will no longer ask me anything, which might lead you to ask, well, does that mean they're not going to have any questions at all? And I don't think that's true. I think the disciples still had questions uh, after the resurrection. But what Jesus means is, you're not going to be asking these questions anymore, these questions that you're murmuring about right now. You're going to get it. It's going to make sense. Okay, keep, Let's keep going. Uh, Verse 23, very truly I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. A few weeks ago, we talked about what does it mean to ask for something in Jesus' name. And just in case you missed that, or even if you were here, I think it's important to review that, because Jesus is bringing this up again. Ask for anything in my name. What does that mean? Well, we don't want to misunderstand Jesus, because we might assume that he's saying, tack the words in Jesus' name onto the end of your prayers, and then you'll be guaranteed to get whatever you ask for. Like, in Jesus' in Jesus's name is a magical spell. That's what in Jesus' name would be if that's what Jesus meant. right? It's, it's this magical spell. You put it on the end of your prayer, and then the prayer automatically goes through, and you get what you want. It's the wrong way to think about it. To do something in Jesus' name is to represent him. right? If I said, I am here in the name of the United States of America, in another country, right, that would mean that I am in some way representing the country that I'm from. Right. So what Jesus is saying is ask for anything that will help you represent me and my kingdom to the world. That's the way we want to think about this. We ask in Jesus' name when we ask for the kinds of things that Jesus would ask for. And so Jesus is saying, after my resurrection, you're going to be able to be my representatives in the world. The kingdom of God is going to advance and spread through you. And as long as you're asking for the kinds of things that I would ask for, you will receive. And as you receive, you're going to have joy. Think about that line. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. So, Jesus connects our joy... With asking in his name, which means representing him. Jesus connects our joy with representing him. Which means we are not going to have fullness of joy until we feel like we are representing Jesus in the world. right? Until we feel like we have some part to play in what God is doing. In working to bring reconciliation and healing to the world. Real joy does not come from just being a passive bystander. Sometimes we feel like that's what's going to make us happy, if we can just be comfortable and take it easy. Jesus says, no, your joy will not be complete until you get in the game, until you're participating. The gospel is more than just you've been forgiven of your sins. I mean, it certainly is that. That's a huge part of it but it's also you have been invited to participate in what God is doing to help bring healing in the world. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 25. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but I will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf, No, the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came from God. So we'll stop here for a moment. Why does Jesus clarify, I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you. It feels a little random, right? Oh, Jesus is like, I just want to make sure you understand this. I'm not saying I will ask the Father on your behalf. Why does he say that? Jesus wants the disciples to understand that he and the Father have the same attitude toward them. This is important. I think that sometimes we get this idea in our heads that God the Father is distant and angry, and God the Son is close and kind. And God the Father wants to... Condemn us, kill us, destroy us. But because God the Father loves God the Son, God the Son can persuade him to calm down. That's the way a lot of us think about it, whether we want to admit it or not. And Jesus wants them to understand, no, 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 the Father feels the same way about you as I do, the Son. Okay, There's no distinction here. We are the same essence, the same will. We have the same mission, the Father and the Son. Like Jesus said earlier, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Son only does what the Father is doing. What Jesus says here reminds me of a line that I heard once. The Father does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because the Father loves us. That's a subtle distinction, but it makes a huge difference in how you think about God. Christ reveals what the Father is like. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 28. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe? Jesus replied. A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So Jesus asks the disciples, do you now believe? And then he kind of answers his own question by saying, you're going to abandon me now. The disciples may be at a point where they feel like they can express their devotion verbally. But Jesus knows that they haven't completely arrived. They don't totally believe yet. But notice, Jesus doesn't say this to berate them or to condemn them. Right? Uh, Look at the last words in the farewell discourse. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. So Jesus says, you're going to leave me alone, you're going to abandon me, and I'm telling this to you so that you will have peace. Kind of a weird flow of thought, right? Why would that bring them peace? Because Jesus is showing them that he knows their flaws, he knows their weaknesses, and yet he's not rejecting them. Right? Just as Jesus knows our flaws and our weaknesses, and he's not condemning us, he's calling us. The verse that I, I really want to focus on for the rest of this morning is that last one. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You know, over the course of this series, we've tried to identify what verses are more specifically for the disciples in the farewell discourse, and which ones are generally for all of us. You know, like, you're going to be thrown out of the synagogues. Well, that's really you know primarily for the disciples. But I think this one we should all hear being spoken directly to us. In this world, you will have trouble. That's a promise from God. It's not the kind of promise that you sew on a pillow and you sell at the Christian bookstore. (laughs) But it's a promise from God, and I don't think any honest person would be able to argue that it contradicts reality. Right? This is the way the world works. Um, You cannot live very long. Without experiencing trouble, right? Health problems, money problems, emotional problems, mental health problems. Even if everything is going awesome right now, I'm confident that before long, you will experience trouble. And I'm not saying that your life is gonna fall apart, but I'm just saying trials happen. Trials will happen to you. Trials will happen to those that you love. In this world, you will have trouble. That's the way it goes. And I'm not trying to say that God directly causes these trials. It's just that in this fallen, messed up world, that is what happens. We have trouble. Uh, I read recently that over the last 3,421 years, There have only been 268 years where there weren't wars going on in the world. So that's 92% of the time over the last 3,000, excuse me, 421 years. Yeah, 3,421 years. In this world, we will have trouble. Murphy's Law is that saying anything that possibly can go wrong will go wrong. And I don't think that's actually true. But it's the sort of thing that people will say in a world where there is trouble. Right? People say that, they joke about it, because we know stuff goes wrong. Right? It's why insurance companies exist and why the premiums are so high. There's so much trouble in the world that the insurance against trouble is a trouble in itself. And all that trouble and the threat of trouble, it robs us of peace. The National Alliance on Mental Illness says that about one in five Americans currently have an anxiety disorder. One in five, 20%. That's a huge number. And of course, that doesn't mean that the other 80% aren't struggling with anxiety too. right? Their anxiety just doesn't qualify as a full-blown disorder. In the first months of the pandemic, the number of Americans taking anti-anxiety medication rose by 34%. People are trying to find peace. And I keep hearing advertisements for phone apps uh, for for meditation, you know, like Headspace and Calm and that sort of thing. Those are very popular now, right? Because people are longing for peace. In this world you will have trouble. And yet Jesus says, take heart. In other words, be courageous. Be brave. Why? Because he has overcome the world. The disciples might have had a hard time understanding what he meant when he said that. But as Jesus said, in a little while they would get it. Then they wouldn't be asking any more questions. Because in a little while they would see Jesus risen from the dead. They would see the proof that he had overcome the world. We lack peace and we struggle with anxiety because we feel like the world is going to overcome us. right? Maybe we think that it's going to overcome us through injustice or poverty or disease or the temptation to do evil right? or some combination of all of those things. We feel like The world is going to overcome us, overwhelm us, destroy us. And we can look throughout history and see that the world seems to have a pretty good record of overcoming people, right? People die and then the world carries on. But in Jesus' case, it's different. At first, the world appears to overcome him. Remember, the world's primary values are things like money, power, and fame. So Jesus came into the world and he challenged those values. He spoke out against those who were giving primacy to those things over justice, mercy, and love. And the people who were attached to the world's values were very offended by that. They were very upset about it. And so the world sought to kill Jesus. And it sought to kill him not just through the ordinary means of disease and death, but through violent execution through an unjust government instigated by religious hypocrites. Like, what a cocktail of worldliness there, right? The world throws its worst at Jesus, and on Good Friday, it appears that Jesus is overcome. It appears that the world has overcome him. Hanging on a cross, he gives up his spirit. But the resurrection is the sign that Jesus is stronger than the world. Stronger than the forces of injustice. Stronger than the temptations that those forces create. Stronger than death itself. In this world of trouble, we long for peace. And the foundation that we need for that peace is the resurrection. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with therapy or I'm not saying that there isn't a place for anti-anxiety medication or Headspace or Calm meditation apps. I'm not not trying to uh, be down on any of that. Those things can be valuable. Those things can have their place. But those things can't overcome the world. For that, we need more. For that, we need the hope of the resurrection. Jesus wants us to have peace, and so he tells us, find your peace in my resurrection. Notice, Jesus doesn't say, take heart, you can overcome the world. Right? He says, Take heart, I have overcome the world. You know, sometimes we try to find peace by convincing ourselves that we can overcome the world. Right? That if we just work hard enough or eat healthy enough, or save enough money, or gain enough recognition and status that we will somehow overcome the world, that we'll we'll transcend it. But that's not where our hope should be. It won't work. You might remember that earlier in the farewell discourse, uh, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, I do not give to you as the world gives. I do not give to you as the world gives. The world does offer us a kind of peace. But the peace that it offers is always insufficient. The peace that it offers, it's like a mirage in the desert. And it looks good from a distance, it looks like it will satisfy your thirst, but as you get closer you realize it just kind of evaporates, and you're still thirsty You still don't have peace. But for some reason, we often choose to keep chasing that mirage rather than turning to the real thing, the real living water. And Palm Sunday is actually a great example of this, of people doing that. Today is the day when we remember when Jesus rode into Jerusalem uh, just about five days before his arrest and then his crucifixion. He rode in on a donkey. And when he arrived in Jerusalem, the crowd celebrated. They were, they were thrilled because they thought, here he is. He is going to set Israel free. He's going to overcome the Romans. And you know, he's going to lead a rebellion and become king. He's going to be a strong political leader, a, a military conqueror. And then we'll have peace. But of course, Jesus didn't do that. And, and the donkey that he rode in on was a clue. Any self-respecting king or military leader would not ride in on a donkey. They would ride in on a a big horse. A donkey was a symbol of peace, not a symbol of warfare. The people were expecting warfare. So Jesus was saying, I've come to bring peace, riding in on, on a donkey. He's signaling, I've come to bring peace, but not in the way that you expect me to do it. I do not give as the world gives. They expected him to bring peace through violence and politics. But that's not how he did it. Worldly kings offer peace through authoritarian control, violence, promises of national dominance, and that sort of thing. But that's just not how Jesus brings peace. Jesus offers a better peace, a peace that is not a mirage in the desert. It's a peace that is not dependent on the pursuit of money, power, and fame. It's a peace that can't be stolen. It's a peace that can endure even when it feels like evil people are winning and being successful. It's a peace that can endure even in the face of death because it's a peace that comes from the resurrection. Even though it appeared like the world had won, then there was resurrection. Even though it appeared like death had ended Jesus' story, then there was resurrection. The world evil, death, none of it is as strong as it appears. This is the peace that we have through the resurrection. Jesus says, find your peace there, take heart, be brave, be courageous. Lord, we thank you for these closing words where you encourage us not to be afraid, Where you remind us that you really do want us to have peace, real peace. Peace that is not false or fake or from living in denial. But peace that comes from the truth that you are stronger than the forces of evil, stronger than death. That you have overcome the world. And that through you, we also can overcome. Lord, I pray that this Easter season, you would impress that on our hearts more than ever before. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.